Hello from Austin, and welcome to episode 104 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Tuesday morning. It's December 12th. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek, and exams are just about over. Have you graded yet? I've graded all of my zero exams. Oh, yeah. You've been on sabbatical this whole time. Dang it. It's not a sabbatical. It's a course release. It's course relief. Whatever. You I, didn't I, am to totally, I am totally that guy who when people are like, how's your leave going? I'm like, I'm not on leave. <laughs> I just have a course release. You should have gone somewhere. I'm on the appointments committee, and we have a baby who's well, who six months old there? today. That, that's outrageous. Somebody put you on the appointments committee. I should take that up with the associate dean. You should. Do you know uh, that guy? Yeah, he's busy grading his exams. Mm. Mm, cybersecurity exams are pretty fun. No. Yeah. Um, so, Bobby, we have a, it's a week before Christmas, and, and all through the, the national security world. Not a creature is stirring. Except for Michael Flynn, who's in court today. Yeah, and it looks like probably no jail time for uh, General Flynn. I mean, you know, okay, so well, that doesn't prove anything. Like, it's like, it's like, that proves it's all a scam. Are people saying that? Yes. Well, that, look, it, we begin with the proposition that people are going to be saying crazy stuff on anything related to these issues. True. The interesting question is, is there any real momentum among sensible people to think that that's the case? No. I can't imagine that's the case. Although you and I might have a different definition of, of sensible people. <laughs> well, that's that's part of the great joys of living in a free world. We, uh, we get to have all sorts of varied definitions of who's worth looking at. But I think you and I both agree that there's a lot of nonsense out there. Yeah. Um, all right. Speaking of nonsense, our frivolity today, when we get to it, is going to be Chevy Chase. Great uh, or greatest? I cannot wait to dive into this topic. This, but, is, this but, is good. But, but rather than spend an hour on Chevy Chase, we thought we should at least do something substantive. So, so we're here for an unexpected, unscheduled... Deep dive. Ooh, what are we deep diving into today, Bobby? Uh, the state secrets privilege. Dude, that old chestnut. That old chestnut is a is a real classic. We should, should we do a whole episode sometime that's just our cliches? That old chestnut. Well, contributing member, Doe versus Mattis. Why don't we uh, have like an all acronym and cliche episode? That's probably also known as most episodes. A-OK. <laughs> uh, so we'll talk FISA and AUMF some other time. Overdetermined. <laughs> it is ever determined that we will do that. Uh, so we're going to talk about the state secrets privilege, which is um, an, an issue that I think you and I, a lot of these issues we both are familiar with. This is one we both have somewhat of a passion for. Um, definitely one of my one of my first scholarly projects was digging very deep into the history of the state secrets privilege. Uh, it's something that matters a ton for anybody engaged in in Fed court stuff, which is you know your your wheelhouse. So uh, I think we'll kind of proceed in a, a historical bent Ooh. to try to take it up through time. Where did this where did this thing come from? Mm. What did it look like the first time the Supreme Court engaged in it, or which which one of these cases counts as the first one? And, and why has it really disappeared over the last five years? I mean, right, this was like you know early late in the Bush administration and early in the Obama administration. It's hard to think of topics that were more um, commonly debated in our field than the state secrets privilege, it's really subsided. There was an article in Political Science Quarterly, I want to say 2005, uh, by uh, Weaver and Polito, and it was uh, sort of a, a Paul Revere moment ringing the bell saying uh, the the government, the Bush administration, is using presidential signing statements, and, and there's the state secrets privilege, and there's all this stuff going on, but it drew attention to the state secrets privilege in a very dramatic way, and it got a lot of media attention, a lot of scholarly attention, and I think it's when, I think it's when a lot of people woke up to the very existence of this thing. Mm. Um, that article, you know, set in motion lots of study. It, it definitely set forth a narrative 
that something different under the sun happened during those uh, post 9-11 years in the early Bush administration, where suddenly the government was using it in ostensibly novel ways. And one of the things we'll talk about in this show is, was it, was it really novel or was it that there were a lot of occasions suddenly coming up where the long existent and potentially long troubling state secrets privilege suddenly was being used in much more visible than normal ways and people were learning this thing was there or relearning it as the case may be. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess, you know, you and I are probably going to end up disagreeing on how much of it was new and how much of it wasn't and also how much of it was controversial and how much of it wasn't. But I mean, I think there's no question that the mass upswell in interest, both by judges and academics, um, is behind us. Um, and that really we tend, we tend not in discussions of contemporary counterterrorism national security litigation to talk that much about the state secrets privilege. Bobby, perhaps we ought to be. Well, I, and just to give the full slide there, I pulled up the article. It's State Secrets and Executive Power by uh, William Weaver and Robert Polito. And that was Political Science Quarterly 2005. So that was a very... Uh, a very impactful piece. You did research. I did well, but I did it on the fly, in yeah. keeping with the ethos of our show. Fair enough. Ooh, ethos. Good. Uh, you like that? I did. Yeah, yeah. Am I continuing my vocabulary <laughs> streak? You say ethos, and I hear essos, and I get more and more ready for, for Game of Thrones. Oh, nice. Thank you. Nice. The essos of the show. Oh, my gosh. That's pretty good. That that would be a contender for a show title. If we didn't we already, already have, have one. one. Yeah. All right. So where to begin with state secrets privilege? Um, I'd like to suggest that the best way to understand... Uh, where the state secrets privilege came from, and therefore to begin to understand what exactly it is, what species of law are we talking about, uh, is to recognize that it made its first appearances really in, in the treatises that dominated how lawyers understood evidence law in the early 19th century. And so a little bit of background on this. The, the way this sort of worked in, in the early republic, um, you frequently would have a, a, a lawyer with a, a decent library of books would have a number of treatises for the various common law topics. Um, they, they might have a treatise on the law of, of uh, property or of contracts, etc. cetera. Uh, and there would be a treatise on the law of evidence, right? So evidence, half of them were written by Joseph Story. Well, well, eventually, right? But so early on, you had to get these things. They were brought over from London. The, the citations and the, the wellspring of it all was, was English authorities. Uh, and what you would then have is an American publisher would take some well-established treatise that's published in London and then add American case annotations corresponding to the different topics. Um, and so in an evidence treatise of the period, you would find references down the footnotes to the American cases. But overall, it was an Anglo-American common law product. And there would be a section that would talk about things like attorney-client privilege. Well, if you go through uh, in sequence some of the leading treatises of that period, you'll find that in the early 19th century, uh, the London treatise writers began to include something that had various titles but looked like a secrets of state privilege. And uh, so to give you an example of what sort of thing would show up under that heading, um, there's one famous case, uh, a treason trial, where there was a claim that there was going to be some sort of attack on the Tower of London. The, uh, the prosecution, the Crown had put forward evidence that the, the defendant had in his possession a map of the Tower of London. <coughs> and that same map apparently was like sold, by, sold to the tourist out on Tower Bridge. Uh, and the defense wanted to put into evidence a copy of a copy of the same map that they just bought on the street to show that this was not inculpatory, that any number of people had these maps. It was no big deal. Yeah, they could have seen it on Zillow. Well, they could have looked it up on Zillow. I've heard that that's a research tool some use. Uh, and the government and the, the court said, no, not admissible. That that is uh, dangerous. It, it, it involves security. How dare you have a map? 
Well, and, and so the, the theory was that the, the court was going to keep it out because it was too dangerous to the security of the state for that to be admitted in a public setting, which was a little bit ridiculous on its face, but it, but it was an illustration of a general principle. And the treatise writers began to cite that in and, and a small number of other cases, and including this in the sections of these treatises where they would say that there's certain, certain matters that perhaps don't get admitted, whereas otherwise they might. Now, the American treatise writers begin to just, you know, pick that up lock, stock, and barrel, but there aren't really any good American cases. People will often refer to, and some of these treatises did cite uh, a moment in the trial of Aaron Burr. Nice. Um, we did not plan that. And there's a moment in there where, where Chief Justice Marshall's deciding whether to compel production of some letters. Chief that, Justice Marshall in his capacity as circuit justice for the Eastern District of Virginia. Right. So, presiding as the trial judge. And there's some, there's some letters that had been sent into the possession of President Jefferson. And the question was whether the president could be compelled to produce them. It, in many ways, it's distinguishable from what all becomes the state secrets privilege. But it, it does have a line in there where Marshall says something about it being a, a more difficult case had the Jefferson administration claimed that disclosure of the letters would reveal uh, secrets that would be injurious to national security. He didn't put it quite that way, but that's how we would say it these days. Um, and so you, you have these little stirrings, but certainly no, you know, there's no Supreme Court decision, let alone any legislation imposing a state secrets privilege. Um, and that's really the state of affairs in the United States when you get to the post-Civil War uh, scenario that gives us the famous uh, case, Totten. Totten. All right, so should we, let's talk about Totten. This is, this is really uh, one of the more interesting and unusual fact patterns, I would say. William, William Lloyd, during the Civil War, uh, supposedly, I was gonna say. supposedly had been, uh, at President Lincoln's personal request, spying throughout the Confederacy. Now, Je suis un espion. Is, is do you that, know that Visa commercial? I do not, but I take no. it that means I am a spy. I think in the commercial that's how it's supposed to. I, who knows if I've bastardized the French. But. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, well, so the whole deal was that Lloyd, I think, was a travel agent, as if you could describe it that way. He was the equivalent of a travel agent for the war. He arranged trips and had lots of connections through the South. And as the war went on, he would still sometimes make the trip from the North down into the South. And the idea was he had been promised ostensibly uh, orally by Lincoln that he'd get 200 bucks a month to be paid later if he would, during the war, come back and report on, you know, troop movements, troop numbers, whatever military relevant information he might see. So his, uh, his estate would later claim that he did all this. But of course, Lincoln himself is killed. There's no written record of the contract. And uh, the estate sues to try to enforce the oral contract with the president. And what I love about this is that uh, early on at the lower court level, it was just it was litigated sort of on the question of, well, did Lincoln have authority to do that? And if so, you know, do we have enough evidence that it really happened? And they weren't engaged at all on this question of whether they ought to be litigating that question in the first place. But it gets to the Supreme Court, and suddenly that's the main focus. Mm -hmm. So uh, Stephen Field, who I think bears a striking resemblance to Dumbledore. Dumbledore. I yes, say that in common yes, law. Yes. Every, every, every time we do like Fields Descent and Slaughterhouse, yeah. I, put a slide, I put a picture of him up and I'm like, Justice Dumbledore, everybody. I do the exact same thing. Great minds think alike. Stephen so, Field, who, by the way, okay, is, I think it's has, actually, to be, has to be one of the more interesting characters in the history of the Supreme Court. 
So do tell. What tell me? Share some of the the backstory. Uh, I mean, there's quite a lot of backstory. I mean, so by the end of his career, he was staying on the bench only because he wanted to break Justice Mar- Chief Justice Marshall's longevity record, <laughs> even though he was, you know, by all accounts senile. Um, he's at one point involved in this tryst, like in this massive, like. Um, uh, fight between uh, the former governor of California and his paramour, where um, you know he puts someone away for murder, and then the guy threatens to kill him. Um, and makes a pretty good attempt at makes it. Makes a pretty good attempt at it. Field has a bodyguard who ends up killing the former governor of California, um, and then the bodyguard is arrested and charged with murder. Mr. Nagel. Which leads to this like really actually quietly important Supreme Court case about whether the president had the power to protect Justice Field without statutory authority to do so. So this is a good national security law nugget here because uh, it's it's often talked about in the sequence of early cases about inherent Article II authorities. And, and it's kind of interesting because it's, it's really not, it, in some ways it's a national security case because you're talking about the armed protection of a senior government official. But, but in, as you just described, it, it's a crime scenario. Yeah. And it's, it's sort of a run-of-the-mill bodyguard scenario. Yeah. But they found that there is inherent authority. Surprise, surprise, the court found there's inherent authority. No, no, no. To, the yeah. surprise is it wasn't unanimous. Right, well, right. Okay, so <laughs> unpack that. Why wasn't it unanimous? Which one of the justices everybody didn't want hated, protection? No, no, everybody hated Field. <laughs> so they couldn't bring themselves to vote, for, vote the, that his bodyguard guy, had authority to use had force? Hole, the guy <laughs> had two holes in his robes where his guns could go. Now that I'm telling is you, an interesting Justice fact. Field is an interesting character and looked like Dumbledore. I think the fact that you and I both independently decided to display images side by side of Field and Dumbledore in our con law classes tells you a lot about us. True. Yeah, Fed courts too, because Field is also really important in Fed courts. Oh, for sure. He wrote Tarbell's case and a couple other things. Well, it, well, okay. So I'm tempted to digress, <laughs> but but back. So so there's this character. Back to tenet. There's this character. So uh, the case comes up in uh, Totten. I don't know why I said Tenet. Yeah, no, no. We'll get we'll to that. We'll, yeah, yeah. we'll get to Tennant. So the Todden case, so the court throws out the case, and, and rather sharply so. Basically, By the way, this is 1876. Yes, so long after the war. Um, and the Supreme Court basically says, you can't litigate to try to prove, well, let me use Field's words, public policy forbids the maintenance of, and this is critical, any suit, the trial of which would inevitably lead to the disclosure of matters which the law itself regards as confidential and respecting which it will not allow the confidence to be violated. So they throw it out and say this this breach of contract claim is... Depends upon the existence of the contract and whether there ever was a contract is itself a secret. Right. This is an espionage relationship if it existed and built into that, uh, factored into the stock price and therefore should have been factored into your pay terms um, is the fact that you're not going to be able to litigate this. That's a harsh rule. And uh, nonetheless, the, the estate was thrown out on its ear. All right, so sometimes this is called the Todden Bar, mm. right? The Todden Bar, bar to suit. And, it, and immediately there's a question, are, are we to apply this really narrowly such that, you know, this is terrible news for people with espionage contracts, but for everything else that might come up in the great wide world of uh, confidential secrets, especially national security secrets, uh, it's neither here nor there. Could be broad, could be narrow. Um, that's what the question was. And we didn't get any real U.S. Uh, judicial insights into that for a long time to come. So if we, if we scroll forward through time, um, basically what happens is that those treatise writers are still churning out the evidence treatises, and that's how most lawyers uh, come to understand what the law of evidence is. They all now have Todden 
as the citation. Now, now these are no longer uh, London-produced treatises in the United States. These are now American-produced treatises filled with American citations. But the state, Wait more. The, yes. And the state secrets privilege is one of the ones you find in the section right there with attorney-client privilege and other things. And they all cite Totten for this. Um, there's not much else to cite for a long time. When you get to the 20th century, though, you start having occasions in federal court litigation that might lead you to this. And that's a big part of the story of this, this doctrinal topic. You need, uh, you need things happening in the real world that actually bring out the occasion to have the government come in and say, hold on, we, we have a problem with that being aired in court. So what happens prior to World War I is you've got a lot of uh, intellectual property litigation going on because industrialization is having its, its way with uh, military affairs. One of the things that's happening is a lot of money is being spent on naval armaments. You start having litigation uh, between companies about alleged infringements relating to, say, artillery specifications. So you get some district court cases like uh, Firth-Sterling, um, a 1912 case. It was a district court decision, but it basically cited Todd and said, look, this one company is suing another for allegedly infringing its artillery patents. Um, the government intervenes and says, you can't, you, you can't go into court and like have presentations of evidence on the nuances of this artillery uh, design because this is a terribly important military secret. And the court says, that's right. And there's an extension there. Now, that's just a district court opinion, but you have an extension into this other realm. And um, can, can I ask a yeah. question? I mean, it seems to me that so Totten and, and Firth Sterling, I mean, these cases are being decided at a time where there's no background understanding that federal courts should ever do anything behind closed doors, right? That, that what, what we today think of as far more sort of normal patterns of secrecy in the federal courts would have seemed very unusual to judges back then. That's interesting. I've never thought about it that way. That makes sense. So you're saying that there was a, uh, a much stronger norm of transparency? Norm, not rule, right? Yeah. I mean, norm. Just um, and that, and that anything, and, and so therefore, it wouldn't have occurred to 19th and early 20th century judges that there might be a compromise where you could conduct litigation in a manner that would protect secrecy. Oh, certainly there was nothing in the ecosystem of the courts at the time that would look at, uh, look to hybrid type solutions right. like Protective you're describing. orders or, you know, sort of. Right. In-camera proceedings. In-camera proceedings. Yeah. Like that, that just wasn't part of the, I mean. You, you probably had variants of that, but not on a regular basis and not in a way that was part of the vernacular yeah. of, of jurists of that, of that era. Right. So uh, that, fast forward to 1953. Ah. Now, two things are really different. Two things have changed at this point that are going to bring us into the modern age of much more frequent state secrets uh, litigation. One is um, post-World War II, from World War II and beyond, we have this vast national security establishment that just wasn't there before. And with it comes this substantial increase in the number of occasions for incidents to happen that could lead to litigation. You just have many more people, much more equipment, much more activity that could result either in contractual or tortious type claims. And relevant to the latter, you have the Federal Tort, tort Claims Act, the FTCA, which waives sovereign immunity for certain tort situations. And for the first time in really all of US history, you have both a ton of military personnel and equipment moving about in various ways that from time to time will cause injury through accident through and sometimes through negligence. Uh, and now you have a clean path to go into federal court to sue about it. That's actually more or less what gets us United States versus Reynolds. The, uh, what is often d described as the Ur case, though I think that it's, it's second in the sequence. So the Fed Courts nerd has to say there's one more development, which is the rise of federal tort claims. 
um, right? That that um, it was very hard to sue the federal government or federal officers in their official capacity for tort. Uh, and so in addition to sovereign immunity being waived in the Federal Tort Claims Act, you're saying that there's also the immunity issue. Yes. Right. So now here, okay, so what happened here? You have a B-29 that's flying inside the United States. It's a training mission. It's got... Uh, Contractors from RCA, Radio Corporation of America, uh, what are they doing on there? They're working on classified equipment. It's a test flight to test out some equipment. Uh, may, I actually don't know what it was. Uh, maybe it was some sort of advanced radar, uh, something sensitive. So there's no question that there's classified activity aboard the flight. It's also true, though, that that doesn't necessarily mean that's got anything to do with why it crashes. And indeed, we later learn it doesn't have anything to do with why the plane crashes. B-29s did actually crash with some disturbing frequency. <laughs> um, there, were, there were design issues. Now, this, this itself becomes important because the B-29, which was a sort of a workhorse bomber for the United States in this, in this era, uh, the, the design to it had been stolen by the Soviets, and they duplicated it for one, to, to create their own workhorse bomber. It meant then that engineering advances that improved the flightworthiness of the B-29, in theory, really were relevant as a national security secret because, you know, if you're the Soviets, anything we figure out to make those things not crash is useful to them as well. It is important to emphasize that was not the ground for no. what later on would become the assertion of, uh, of the state secret. secrets privilege. That's, right. That's an argument that actually, I think, was available to them, but yes. it's not what they were no, arguing. No, if that, if that had been the argument, I would, actually have have so much, sense. I would have so much less trouble with Reynolds. Right. So that argument only kind of comes in later, as we're going to see. So what happens? The plane crashes. The, the Everybody sort of, dies. Everyone dies. The widows of the RCA employees sue. So the civilians. Right. And it's sort of your classic, you know, aircraft crash type Just situation. Just the, the, the service members probably could not have sued under the Ferris Doctrine, um, right? Because the Ferris Doctrine bars federal tort claims against the federal government by service members for claims arising out of or incident to their military service. So the, the presence of contractors was key to there even being this occasion. The presence of... It's almost like military contractors involve different questions of tort liability under federal law. <laughs> have you have you been working on that recently, Steve? I, I mean, I may or may not be in the middle of writing a reply brief on the subject. Oh, is that what all that junk is on this desk? Uh, that's some of the junk on this that, desk. That is some of it. The, the Mets bobbleheads or other parts of it. And, and the orange re response briefs. All right. That's awesome. All so, right. So, so the, they sue. So the, so the widows sue. So it's all coming along pretty well. They're, they're going to try to prove Classic, that, Just a classic negligence suit. Yeah, right? there's nothing tricky about the suit itself. Right. No one ever claims the Air there Force, is. The Air Force was negligent in its operation. Operation and maintenance of the B-29. That negligence was a direct and proximate cause of the death of our, you know, of our, of our, of our husbands. Now, if you're a plaintiff's lawyer, you'd like to be able to prove that negligence. What better way than if you could get your hands on the post-accident accident report? Yeah, the the post-accident investigative report. Someone else has already dug into this, yeah. and that sounds like a great shortcut. Hey, to gov proving. government, what what was your conclusion about why the plane crashed? Was exactly. It, was was it negligence? So they seek production of this document, yes. the report, uh, and and then the case goes sideways because the government takes a really hard line on this, basically saying, no, we're not producing it. Um, and the first line of argument was, well, look, it's, it's terrible public policy. This is actually familiar to evidence law, right? That it's bad public policy to allow plaintiff's attorneys to get their hands on these reports because it discourages honesty in the reports and you want the reports to be yeah, how dare the, sealed off. How dare the government tell the truth because it might expose it to tort liability? You want the government to prevent future accidents. And so you want to incentivize the most protected zone of of candor and disclosure on an aggressive investigation. And then you want the plaintiffs to be able to 
discover that for themselves, right. but they shouldn't be able to shortcut it in a way that might discourage post-accident investigations. That's the theory, and that's 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 a big part of uh, current modern evidence law too. So, um, anyways, whether it's Ooh, right or wrong, that was wrong. It was not a state secret. Well, do, do you feel similarly about the attorney-client privilege and doctor-patient privilege and other privileges that, for public policy reasons, exclude uh, disclosure of otherwise relevant evidence? No, but all of those privileges have exceptions where you can show reasons why the privilege should be overcome. Uh, the state secrets privilege does not have an exception except for procedural noncompliance. No, attorney-client privilege doesn't get overridden. If, Crime uh, fraud. It, there are waivers, but there's waivers here too. But there's it doesn't get it doesn't it's get not the it, same thing. Oh no, that absolutely, the it's the same thing. thing. No. Uh, all right, let's unpack this. Attorney-client privilege is ah. not subject to balancing based on the needs of, of course, the litigant. Clearly, that's what I'm talking about. But I'm, what I'm talking about is that the gut is that the the adverse party, the party seeking to breach the privilege, has the opportunity in the attorney-client privilege context to argue that the privilege does not apply because various things are true about the substance of the communication ah, protected I, by the privilege. I thought you were saying that it gets balanced out like no, like no, no, work no. product doctrine. No, no, my, does. no, my point my point is that there's an opportunity in the attorney-client context for a substantive showing by the adverse party that the privilege ought to be overcome. Right. Because, not because of balancing. But, but because but, the communication was about a crime or fraud. Or and, is otherwise unprotected by the privilege. Right. Now, let's be really clear, though, because not everybody here is a lawyer. When we say that there's a waiver for uh, crime or fraud going on in that communication, that doesn't mean, therefore, that if you're a criminal defendant and you've committed a crime and you're, sh- and you're, you're talking to your attorney about what you did and you're being forthright and honest that there's no privilege for that. That's right. That stuff's totally protected. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even though it would be awesome inculpatory no, no, no. evidence for the prosecution to get its hands well, on. Well, this is Michael Cohen and Donald Trump, right? He's a lawyer. I just I just did what the lawyer told me to do. I, don't, that, I, I, I see no connection there to what <laughs> I'm saying you and know, what Donald Trump I says agree. about Michael Cohen. Well, well, listen, this is, this is a theme I'm going to come back to a lot in the next however long we're doing this show for, right? Which is one of my principal objections to the state secrets privilege is the lack of an opportunity on the part of the party who is adverse to the invocation of the privilege to challenge the substantive validity of the application yeah. of the privilege. Okay, so we'll get there then. But, uh, that's, but that's clearly that's why, important. But that's why I yeah. reacted the way I did, because that to me is a jarring contrast with the attorney-client privilege where that opportunity is available. So I definitely want to talk about that yeah. in some detail. Yeah. Okay, so let's get there through the lens of Reynolds. Um, the government tries to keep it out as a post-accident investigative report and um, doesn't succeed and ultimately gets sanctioned that, that when they won't disclose it, even though the, the trial judge says, no, you've got to disclose it, they say, well, we're going to take that on appeal. And the judge says, all right, fine. It goes up to the Third Circuit Court of Appeals. Same thing plays out. It's not yet a claim of state secrets or national security being at stake. When it becomes clear that this isn't going to go well, well, actually, I think I had the sequence wrong there. I think the district court first said, no, you lose on post-accident investigative report sanctity. And they say, well, we got a fallback argument. And what's that? And the fallback argument is also there was there's classified activity involved in this particular flight. And disclosure is going to expose some really sensitive secrets that the Soviets would like to have. Right. So we can't disclose it. And then the, the court, the district court says, well, let me look at it. Bring it to bring it to chambers. In camera, ex parte, right. I will examine it, just me. And the government says, we can't, we're sorry, but we can't do that. Even that is too much of and a that's, risk. And that's where my blood starts boiling. All right. Well, I'll give you more to boil over in a moment. Because, <laughs> of course, as you know, this story gets... Oh, I know where this goes. Yeah, the story gets worse. So so the government says, we, we'll, we'll fight this in the Court of Appeals. Yep. 
So they go up to the Third Circuit, and they lose there as well. And, and to be clear, what the district judge and the Third Circuit were both saying was... Not that there's no privilege. Not that there's no privilege, but the first step in assessing it is going to be for the judge to decide it. It's not a purely unilateral executive determination. Right. Um, there's a substantive role for the federal judge to play in deciding whether the material over which the government is asserting privilege is in fact privilege. Right, which, and so no one's denying that there might be such a privilege or, or even that it might be relevant yeah, here. Yeah. But, the, but the judge is gonna decide exactly what's, what's the deal. So it goes to the Supreme Court. Chief Justice Vinson writes uh, the decision. Um, and it's a very cursory, like it's a very sort of, not, not cryptic, but just sort of back of the hand you know, this is easy, obvious, and straightforward type of opinion. No, it's it's very interesting, like how how it is kind of cursory. It's got some sweeping language. It's got this one gigantic flaw in it, and I like. To, I think we should disentangle the the different moving parts. So, first of all, he says some things that I don't think most people find controversial. He says when the uh, privilege is going to be invoked, it can't be invoked by just anybody. For, for example, it can't just be invoked by the Justice Department right. litigating the case. Like an AUSA. Yeah, it's got to be invoked uh, directly by the head of the department that has control over the information. So here, if the head of the Air Force invokes it, so be it. That's good enough. That, that's a minor uh, but perhaps significant com- constraint, right? You do you do gain something by elevating the control over invoking it to a certain high level. I mean, we've, I mean, we've talked about that in the context of FISA, right? That you know, it's it ma- when a senior official has to put their name on it, that tends to at least exert a little bit of right. soft pressure. Yeah. Now, before getting to the question of who gets to make the final call, whether the thing is privileged, there's the question of what standard they're applying. Mm-hmm. And he talks about a reasonable risk of harm to national security from disclosure. There's a lot of different ways to parse that, right? So reasonableness as the calibration of the risk. Well, I mean, what does that really mean? It's sort of an eye of the beholder type thing. It sounds like a fairly forgiving, from the government's perspective, a fairly flexible and forgiving test. There's also the question of, well, what do we mean by national security? You know, what what exactly counts? So are we talking about, like, the state of our education system implicates ultimately our national security, that climate change implicates national security? Or do we mean military operations, intelligence community operations? It, the, the court makes no effort to grapple with unpacking either of those concepts, the, the degree of risk involved being calibrated at reasonable or the object of the risk being cali- calibrated in terms of harm to national security. But those are pretty diff- diffuse concepts, to put it mildly. He then confronts head-on. The government in its brief had argued that the judge has no role here, except maybe to make sure the right kind of official really invoked it. But the substantive determination of whether there was a reasonable risk to national security, that should be decided, the, the government said, by the government official. Vincent, to, to his limited credit, uh, did say it's the judge's call. He expressly rejected what had been argued for as the so-called English rule in the government's brief. So he says, no, the court's going to decide this. So you would think then that based on all that, he's coming down the way the district court in the Third Circuit um, had come down. But this is where it kind of goes off the rails. Uh, he doesn't say that you never look at the document and you just kind of figure it out somehow through osmosis. He says that the court can look at documents, but should only do so if it is clearly necessary to do it, and then jumps to the remarkable conclusion that it's not necessary here. And his logic, insofar as he spells it out briefly, is that no one can seriously doubt that the United States and the Soviet Union are locked in this global contestation that we now know is the Cold War. He talks about the risk of global thermonuclear war, the, the whole nine yards, right? Um, but he's, he's alighting something. He's skipping over a rather significant question. A, is the particular stuff that was on this plane 
really relevant for that? Um, perhaps so. But is that even in the document, let alone so thoroughly woven throughout the document that there'd be no way simply to redact a page or two or a paragraph or two and disclose all the rest of the report? He says it's clear from just the description that this stuff is secret and therefore it should not be disclosed and therefore he, he sinks the entire document. And so the plaintiffs don't get the document. They go on, they settle the case after that, um, I think for $170,000, something like that. And, and that's the end of it. They don't get the document. The case got to go on, but the document was suppressed. So, so we see right there a sort of a distinction from the Totten Bar, which is when the, the case can't go forward because, as later courts would put it, the, quote, very subject matter of the litigation, unquote, is a secret, versus the evidentiary privilege, which is individual items of evidence must be excluded because they include state right. secrets. And then the case the case goes on or doesn't go on as the case may be. It may be fatally wounded by that. It may not be. It may not be. Right. In this case, it wasn't fatally wounded by any stretch. They could still try to prove it the other way. They just don't get to ac access the accident investigative report. Now, here's the, the fun coda. The remarkable coda is fast forward generations. Uh, the internet arrives, all kinds of websites being created. People, hobbyists, people have hobbies like collecting old accident investigative reports that have long since become public record. There's a descendant, I think the daughter of one of the, the plaintiffs, uh, comes across such a site. And of course, it's part of the family lore. You know all about this case. And on, I think, sort of a whim, she punches in the details to right. see if, if the B, one... B-29 accident, you know, yeah, Georgia, she, blah, blah, blah. Exactly. And, and, finds, and finds the damn document. You know, it's like, there it is. And, and of course... Lo and behold... No reference to, to anything secret there, there was a reference to the fact that there was there was a meta reference right. to the fact that there was secret rca equipment on board but no discussion but had, of what that equipment was like no right inventory. it didn't even say what it is and even if it did like you could you could you know pull the, pull that page so, out so what does the report say was the cause of the accident bobby uh, actually i don't, don't know i don't negligence. know negligence yeah, yeah no, no Ma surprise ma there. maintenance related negligence on the part of the air force yeah having nothing to do with the secret equipment that was being tested which doesn't surprise me in the slightest so right. in other words the accident report there was no scenario in which the accident report involved the state secret exactly exactly None. and and critically it nicely illustrates how it should have been handled what should have happened here the judge, they should have produced the document to the judge. The judge would in look camera, through. ex parte. He would have sat there with, with the equivalent of a Sharpie in his yeah. hand, seen the one or two lines that says, hey, RCA had secret equipment. You know what? Black those out. Right. Or even get some scissors. Cut <laughs> them out. And then, or poorly redact them so that Matt Tate can unredact it. <laughs> That's right. Uh, so the, the point is that the, the, there was clearly a fatal flaw in the Reynolds decision having to do with the specific question of whether the court should be able to review the document in that particular case. Clearly they should have. It was outrageous that they didn't. And indeed, and had they, I think there's no one argues that had the court been able to conduct in-camera substantive review of the document, right. it would still have concluded that the document was protected by the state. Right, Department. so well, this is where it gets interesting. So people, later on when this came out, there was, there was some echo litigation about yeah. this. And the government said, hey, all this stuff about why the plane crashed and how it crashed would have been really useful to the Soviets. And I actually think that's probably right. And if, if I had been the judge in 1950 or 51 or whenever the case was litigated at the trial court, I might have been receptive to that argument. Um, but that wasn't the argument that was being made at that time. So 
there's Reynolds. It clearly has a fatal flaw, but note that that fatal flaw is very specific to one of the several different questions that surrounds the state secrets privilege. That doesn't mean the idea of the privilege. That's right. To me, it doesn't, it doesn't in any way undermine the idea. No, no, listen, of the I, mean, I, I want to be clear. I am not averse to the idea of a state secrets privilege in the abstract. What bothers me about the state secrets privilege is that it is a one sided, unilateral, non reviewable substantive determination by the government. So let's put some more flesh on the bones. Uh, we fast forward it. It starts getting used with some frequency really in the 70s. Mm -hmm. So if you, if you, it's hard to count these cases because, of course, we tend to count cases based on what's reported. Um, there are you know, plenty of rulings that don't get reported. Especially in the district courts. Yeah. So, so in the 70s, you have an explosion of revelations about NSA and other intelligence community activities that impacted the privacy of Americans. Lots of suits. Those suits almost all go down in flames based on the state secrets privilege. And the idea in each of those cases is that, like Halkin v. Helms, these, these are cases where people think that they might have been surveilled and they try to sue, they try to get discovery to confirm that indeed they were surveilled. And the courts refuse to allow that discovery on the grounds that it's asking for production of secret information about the targets of surveillance and that the government cannot be forced to admit or deny whether they surveilled you. And that that's fatal to the case. And it's sort of a hybrid of Tenet and, and uh, and uh, Reynolds in that it's not that it's a little bit of the nature of the Toddenbar with the whole idea of the, the very subject matter of the litigation makes it uh, beyond reach. It's not so much that, though. It's really just the fatal impact of knocking out any discovery to confirm that you're, in fact, a properly uh, injured party on the front end, which means you might as well d dismiss the case because you can't prove your standing. The only cases that made it forward were the few instances where there was public disclosure of who the objects of surveillance were. Uh, and in those cases, they didn't need any request for production. Of, they didn't have to give information or documents to prove it. There was other public confirmation. Can I be a nerd for one second? I mean, nerd so, out. So I think just one second. Yeah, I mean, well, you know, um, it's right that the that standing is the problem, right? But the, I think it's actually more accurate to say notice is the problem, right? Because standing presupposes that there's no injury, not that you're unable to prove that you were it, right? That right, that that the absence of standing requires proof of injury, in fact. It's very possible there's injury, in fact, but without notice, you can't carry the burden. So it's about what you can prove right. when the government says, I don't think you have standing. Right. Prove you're injured. And you're like, well, I can't prove it, but I think you have papers or other information that will prove it. And, and, this, and just to fast forward to the present for a second, I mean, this is the fight in the Wikimedia case, right, about, about uh, upstream collection under Section 702 of the 2008 FISA Amendments Act. Yeah, and this is why I think when we've talked about that before, we've often said, like, at the end of the day, you know, barring some both uh, disclosures and then confirmation by the government, yeah. it's, it's going to be very difficult. Yeah, or it's one of those cases that you litigate without the state secrets and you just see how far you can get. Yeah, exactly so. And so, that, yeah. So, all right, so, so should we fast forward to 9-11? Yep. All right, so um, what happens after 9-11, I think, is twofold, right? One, you have an uptick in civil litigation in non-surveillance contexts where it actually seems, where, where the government's kinetic actions actually are producing a visible effect um, and so there seem to be obvious plaintiffs. Um, so perhaps the most controversial subset of these cases is the extraordinary rendition cases. Yeah. Like El Masri. Like El Masri versus Tenet, where you have individuals who, Bobby, they have noticed because they were arrested yeah. and transferred and tortured. Yeah, they can testify firsthand all these things that happened to them. Exactly. So you don't have the same problem of notice and proof that you have in the surveillance context. Um, and so you have a rash of cases from folks who are 
um, wrongly picked up, right? Because those are the folks who are released the first, the ones who are in the wrong place at the wrong time, like Khaled al-Masri, um, who bring these civil suits saying, yo, I was picked up, I was detained by the CIA, I was tortured, I was then sent to another country where I was treated even worse, I should be able to sue someone for damages. Um, and unlike in the surveillance cases, there's no, there, you know, the, there's no disputing that the plaintiff, as long as he's telling the truth, has a viable claim, but the government still invokes the state secrets privilege. Right, because from the government's perspective, it's, they're not going to try to knock the case out by saying, like, what are you talking about? How do you know anything happened to you? That's not it. It's the explanation as to what did happen right. and who did we work Proving with. Proving the and particulars. Where is, it's, it's that everything about responding to the allegations in the complaint would involve confirming various classified facts about, yeah, we've got this facility here. Yes, we worked with that government there. Right. So they so, argue so you, that we right. can't defend ourselves. We can't, we can't file the answer, and later on we won't be able to to participate in our part of the case without being forced to admit all these classified things. And the government basically wins all of those cases at the circuit level, and the Supreme Court denies cert. Um, now, the one the one sort of spin, Bobby, and, and you know the case law better than I do, so maybe this happened before 9-11, but the one argument that really emerges, in my experience, in full flower in the post-9-11 cases is not just all the things that we already knew about the privilege, but that the privilege is in fact constitutionally grounded, right? That, that, that there was not, Reynolds doesn't say anything about this, right? There's no real focus. Totten doesn't either. Like those, you can read those cases yeah. so closely, trying to find, okay, so what is it that they're w where's interpreting? Where's it coming from? Right. Yeah, where, where is this coming from? Uh, now, Reynolds cites Totten. Right. Totten is really just cursory. Field, Field is just extracting this in classic 19th century uh, manner out of the ether. Right. No, no. The Supreme Court never says aggressively, right, one way or the other, that this privilege does or does not come from the Constitution. The closest the court comes is actually in the unrelated executive privilege discussion in the Watergate tapes case in Nixon, where the court grounds executive privilege in Article Two of the Constitution, yeah. which I think a lot of folks, especially executive branch lawyers, think ought to be in pari materia with state secrets privilege. Right. And so you, you get this sort of uh, explosion of academic debate and a little bit of judicial back and forth post 9-11 about, is this whole thing an expression of the Article Two prerogatives of the executive branch with respect to its control over classified information? Or, or is it a background common law evidentiary privilege? Right. And the reason why that matters is because if it's a background common law evidentiary privilege, it can be modified, tailored, or even abrogated by Congress. Exactly. And whereas, and, and query whether that might not also be true, even if it's an Article II default principle, right. it gets to override questions. Does Congress have the ability to do to change the status quo? Um, also, conversely, is it possible that even if it's best understood as a common law evidentiary privilege, and what I described earlier was clearly an example of common law yeah. thinking. No, no, um, no, one, no one disputes that at a minimum. Right. But is it, so when we look at evidentiary privileges that mostly have arisen over time through the common law, we're used to thinking of them as judge-crafted expressions of policy preference that become entrenched in the common law and normalized. Um, that doesn't mean that the underlying policy preference isn't rooted in an understanding of what constitutional powers the the executive branch might have. So it, it's possible, I'm not saying this is the right way, but it's possible to look at Todden in particular yep. and say that, look, if really pressed, if we could summon forth Stephen Field from the great beyond, <laughs> oh, we, God, help us. we could, uh, he, you know, he emerges Dumbledore-like in the corner. See, like, what what exactly made you think that, that there is this zone of protection? Like, where in the, where in the law did you get this? And he right. might I'd say, 
Well, look, basically, it's it's the executive background principles of evidence. Background principles of evidence that are mostly motivated, he might say, by Article Two notions of or the not. president's in charge. Right. Which is why I didn't say he would say this. No, 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 no. Uh, no. But this is my point, right? So, so there's this open question. I think you and I agree it's an open question. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, well, right. Congress in, ni- in the in the early 1970s, when Congress codifies the federal rule of evidence, there's a proposal on the table to codify. The state secrets privilege with some limits. I think it was what it was going to be Rule Five Hundred Nine. I something think. like that. Um, and there's opposition on both sides. So there are some folks who say, "Well, we can't legislate it because it's constitutionally grounded," and there are other folks who say, "Well, we ought not to legislate it because it ought not to exist." Right. right. So, so, so the legislative history is perfectly equivocal. Yeah. There's it's it's clear that no surprise there in the '70s. All these members were not quite sure what is the status of this thing. So which, they just left it alone. Yeah, absolutely. And they left it in, left it untouched. All right. So can I, say, can I add two more points about yeah. sort of post 9/11 innovations? Yeah. So separate from whether there were more cases or not, and that's actually itself a matter of academic debate. I mean, you've written about that. Laura Donahue's written about that. Amanda Frost has written about that. Um, the two other features. Wait, can I on that real quick? Yeah. Just say. It's it's sort of I've argued it's like it's a silly question because there's unquestionably been vastly more occasions. That's the thing. And so what are we we're not comparing apples to right, oranges. Right, we're the, comparing the, apples the, to oranges. The denominator is going to be higher. Exactly. All right. So this is why I was moving past that. Um, so the two other I think interesting facets of the post 9/11 debate that I think don't get enough attention. One, there at least seemed to be an uptick in the number of private versus private suits, Bobby, where the state secrets privilege was showing up. There were not zero examples before 9-11, but there really were only a handful, um, right? Whereas now, and maybe this is just the nature of the beast, that as we are using more private military contractors, as we are using more, you know. I think that's right. That, that's, I, listen, yeah. it's fine, right? But as yeah, I'm, in, I'm agreeing with you. As in like my political question doctrine cases, right? I think there's a, it's not obvious that the map is one-to-one, that private parties are similarly situated as the government is when it comes to the privilege. Um, and then the second thing, and I think this is the piece of the conversation that never gets enough attention, is these sort of modern contemporaneous assertions of the privilege are coming against a very uh, are coming within the backdrop of a very different federal court system, of a federal court system that has the FISA court, of a federal court system that has SEPA, the Classified Information Procedures Act, of a federal court system that now has you know uh, uh, 25 and then up to today 40 years of experience in various settings handling, with really Bobby very little evidence of mishandling, highly sensitive classified national security information. And so it seems to me that we ought to have a conversation about whether the Reynolds sort of distrust of the district judge, right? The the Reynolds idea that we're not going to allow the judge to make the on the ground ex parte in camera assessment might need to be reassessed or ought to be reassessed given that we now ask federal district judges to make exactly those kinds of assessments in so many other contexts. So I think I think that you've just put your finger on something really important that I think is actually not an issue. Let me let me explain Ooh. why I think that. Um, it's really important, no, but it's not an issue. That's right. It's really important because a lot of people believe it's an issue, and I don't think it is. Okay. This is the very narrow question among the many other questions. Narrow question of uh, the problem that was on full display in Reynolds about not letting the trial judge look at the, the information. Uh, has that ever been a deal since then? Clearly, it, as I said, huge flaw in Reynolds. Uh, it is widely thought that perhaps that is still an ongoing problem. I would argue and have argued in print that it is not a problem at all, that whenever there is a document that the district judge is 
always look now. Now, often there isn't actually a document. What is instead the it is information. It's knowledge that would be presented in litigation through discovery, if at all, in the form of, of depositions and later on testimony. Um, and even in those cases, the district judge in every instance under the modern practice, the, the post-2001 practice, and certainly uh, post-Obama practice, um, there is always a, a declaration from the, whether it's the DNI or the Secretary of Defense, um, long detailed documents that the trial judge is actually making the decision. So my view is we've actually fixed through effectively common law processes, the courts themselves without legislative intervention fixed the Reynolds flaw itself. But that doesn't, and, and that helps us, I think, concentrate on what I take to be the bigger issue, which is, do we really want it to be the case that there's no litigation forum because it's classified information? In other words, that these are all beyond the reach of the federal courts, ultimately, especially in cases like Al-Mazri and the other rendition cases, where the very heart of the litigation does require going into these classified matters. So do we really want a tenant-like prohibition to spread across all these right. cases. Or, or do you want to create like a FISA-like process for, yeah. for secret adversarial litigation? That's the interesting question. Since we, since we already have it. I mean, this is, you know, just to go back to FISA, I mean, so so when I say, well, we do this under FISA, folks say, no, FISA is just about warrants. And I say, well, no, it hasn't been just about warrants since the USA Patriot Act. But can I quibble with one thing? Yeah. So under FOIA, if the government invokes exemption one, right, that is to say that information is not subject to FOIA because it's properly classified in the interest of national security, the trial judge is allowed to review the information and determine whether, in fact, it was properly classified. Okay. Um, and so, for example, if the information being sought under FOIA relates to activity by the government that is illegal, fraudulent, or abusive, um, right, it's not properly classified, even if it relates to national security. Right, and there's the delta here. So the trial judge in the state secrets context is also going to look, but instead of asking that question about is this properly classified subject to these sort of these waivers, the trial judge in the state secrets context is asking that Reynolds question, would public disclosure no matter no matter how wrong right. the activity was, would public disclosure reasonably harm national security? And that's my problem. So and so why should that be the rule? And now we can imagine the, the argument is, well, because, you know, the greater interest in carrying on national security activities, blah, blah, blah. Well, look, why can't we come up with a system that allows us to go very far towards protecting these security interests, yet at the same time go much farther than the current uh, distance we go, which is no distance at all, yep. towards allowing people who may have legitimate claims of unconstitutional yeah. activity yeah. To get a day in court. Now, you might say, well, the, because you you just can't square that circle. You you have to have all of one or all of the other, but you can't have both. Um, and the better version of that argument is, you can turn to other outlets to address the unconstitutional activity. Now, this brings us to what Obama did when he came into office. So. As we described, there was a lot of ferment during the Bush administration. I mean, people really came down hard on the Bush administration for this. Very few people kept coming down hard when the Obama administration. That's not true. It is true. There was so much criticism of when, the Bush administration. Wait, wait. I, the, I didn't say everybody, so I know you can think of examples. I know you can think of examples of people that are still unhappy about it. But the volume of criticism clearly dropped on this. When, when, and Doug, there was Letter, a reason. when Doug Letter got up in the Ninth Circuit, like one month into the Obama administration, and made an aggressive argument in favor of the state secrets privilege. What was I'm trying to remember? It was a Muhammad versus Jefferson data plan. It was the um, it was the torture flight yeah, case. Yeah, Ninth Circuit, yeah. right? Um, there was a ton of backlash and a ton of pushback. I, I submit 
you know, if someone, a listener who's really intrepid can go do the, uh, the counting. If we look for the, if we try to capture the amount of media attention, the amount of law review articles that lambasted the Bush administration for state secrets assertions, and then compare that to how did it look under Obama, I would submit that, especially as you get on into the Obama administration, people just st- sort of stop talking. I'm not about saying it. numerically. I'm just saying that, like the notion. That, right, like, but I was. Yeah. So, so I don't think we actually disagree. I agree with you that the people who are really focused on this issue continue to be every bit as upset. And we're with even, Obama. And, and we're in some ways even more pissed off. Right, but what? Well, right, because there's a little sense of betrayal there, which I'll explain sort of why they might have felt that way in a second. But I, I'm talking about the larger atmosphere because there was a lot of really substantial public criticism of Bush and his Justice Department for using this tool. It didn't really change. So here's here's what did change. Uh, there had been a major legislative push. There was a bit of a bipartisan push to create a bill that would both more formally recognize the privilege, but pull back on it in certain ways. And the create, State Secrets Protection Act. Right, including critically uh, making sure that there's some sort of vehicle for the opposing counsel to have a bite at the apple when the decision's being made about whether to recognize the privilege. Um, I'm trying to recall whether it was... Uh, I think there was going to be the, yeah, the judge could appoint counsel to stand in for the private litigants, sort of a uh, special uh, special advocate type procedure, which I actually think is a really cool idea that has a lot of potential in this area. But that bill, the old State Secrets Protection Act, never went anywhere, in part because when Obama comes into office, there's, there's obviously going to be a much, there was initially a lot more trust in how he would wield executive power, a belief, as you indicated, a lot of people who've been critical of Bush assumed that on this issue, he would prove to be uh, much less aggressive in invoking the privilege. I don't think he was. Um, in September 2009, the Justice Department promulgated, quote, policies and procedures governing invocation of the state secrets privilege. It basically said uh, the standard for DOJ invocation of the privilege is, quote, uh, disclosure would, quote, reasonably could be expected to cause significant harm to the national security of the United States. That's certainly not different than, than uh, Reynolds. Um, what was different was there now are all these additional signatures, all sorts of Justice Department senior officials have to personally vet the invocation of the privilege by the classified information holder. They've got to all sign off on it. You know, there's a the assistant attorney general for the relevant division, probably civil division, uh, has to make a written recommendation that then gets reviewed by a senior committee. Then it goes up to the DAG, the deputy attorney general, who in turn must personally advise the attorney general, who must then personally sign off on the privilege. So they create all these sort of wickets of additional invocation. Um, But substantively, I've seen no indication, nothing that leads me to believe that the pattern of invocations is different substantively than what came before, just as I don't think that Bush was particularly different from, from Clinton or Carter. I think that the bulk of the cases and the really controversial things quite properly fell on Bush's watch because they were his policies. But that is why it seemed like all the attention yeah, was there. Right, that it, was, it, was, it was the policies that were being insulated from challenge by the privilege, not the procedural or substantive mechanics of the privilege. I think that drove it a lot. And I also think that's partly why it dies off under Obama. You just stop seeing as much attention well, to I mean, it. I mean, right, Obama stopped extraordinary rendition. Obama closed the CIA black sites. And so Obama, people aren't right. going to, but, but, but as you pointed out, but didn't change the litigating yeah, posture yeah, that yeah. this is not coming yeah. in. So that's actually where it came to rest. I think the issue kind of died as a first-tier issue of public policy in our space uh, at some point during the Obama years. Yeah, I, mean, I still, I still think there is sentiment out there among the folks who actually, you know, follow these cases, perhaps even more closely than you or I do, that if and when there's a, you know, one-party Democratic control in Washington, that maybe it would be time to revive the State Secrets Protection Act. I think that if you couldn't get that done under Obama. 
I mean, it was right there. It was teed up. Yeah. It had some bipartisan support. Yeah. And Obama, who had come into office really sounding the themes of of resisting this trend towards unilateral assertions of executive power, yeah. um, very quickly moved aggressively to head off the momentum. But I just want to say, I mean, but the, the thing that sort of, and maybe this is a good place to stop the, this. I mean, right, the, the thing that I really lose sleep over when it comes to the state secrets privilege is the sort of competency question, which is if we think about what we task federal judges with doing today in the national security space, the kinds of factual determinations, the kinds of legal determinations, um, the kinds of, you know, sort of case management with hyper-secret facts on both sides, in the Guantanamo habeas litigation, in high-profile criminal cases, the notion that, in, under FOIA, right, the notion that we can't trust a federal district judge to look at an accident report and tell us whether the thing should have been properly classified as opposed to whether, you know, I mean, so the action report may be a bad example because, like, under any standard, that shouldn't have been a state secret. Yeah. But imagine, so extraordinary rendition, right? If you believe, as I do, that the extraordinary rendition program was illegal in violation of the United States' both statutory and treaty obligations under the UN Convention Against Torture, um, then presumably the existence of the program and the core facts around the program were improperly classified because it is not a justifiable basis for classification under the relevant executive orders that the thing you're classifying is illegal, right? And so in my world, a judge, in a, a judge re reviewing a state secret assertion in a context where the thing that is a state secret is actually evidence of government illegal activity should be in a position to say, I don't believe that's a state secret, not because it won't harm national security, but because it's not lawfully a secret. It is an unlawful secret. So that's the critical distinction. It's The problem is not, as, as people who are not fully acquainted with this issue sometimes think, they think like the, the court's not even looking. It's just blind deference. That's not the problem. Right, the, what, what the can they is, do? The issue is, yeah, the issue is can they, as they might in the FOIA context, second-guess... Second-guess... Right, yeah. Uh, can they second guess the determination that it shall be classified at all? Um, and of course, that then invites sort of uh, what would become this sort of tail wagging the dog front end mega litigation about the legality of the underlying conduct in the first place. And so there's, there is some element of circularity to it, but it's certainly possible if we wanted to, to create special advocates or even just direct in-camera procedures if you've got clearances otherwise for these attorneys. You could, you could do it. Um, not a lot of countries have that. I'd, I'd be interested to know whether... David Cole and I wrote a paper about this. So, so there's some experience with cleared counsel, um, right, and other forms of, like, special advocate life. No, I know, that, I know that. And, like, so in immigration proceedings in Canada, and there are a number of examples where cleared counsels uh, have been used as um, stand-ins, as sort of guardians ad litem. And I've, even, I've also written about this as being desirable for vetting the privilege assertion itself. Um, the question is whether anyone else has allowed the equivalent of classified information uh, in, that stands in the, so in the, the, the British example is the closest parallel, right? And, it, and it's changed over time. They have a much more, a system that's much more similar to ours. What I don't know, and maybe some of our listeners can tell us, is is it possible for a British judge to second guess ultimately the determination that classification was warranted in the first instance and thereby pave the way for a claim of uh, yeah, I mean the thing is, I mean the British system. I mean the Official Secrets Act is a lot less forgiving, right? Than than our than. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Anyway, so so all right. So there, there's the state secrets we've, privilege. We've, we've hit the bottom. We've we've drilled it all the way down, and you can now decide if you think it's it's wonderful, a travesty, or something in between. Yes.
speaking of things that are both wonderful and travesties, uh, or something in between, we've got the film career of Mr. Chevy Chase. So are we limiting ourselves to film? No, although okay. I, I, you may know the TV stuff much better than well, I, just, I I think I, mean, I think if we're, if we're talking about Chevy Chase's, you know, um, uh, uh, I don't want to say of again, but of, um, it's hard to it's hard to not include Saturday Night Live because I feel like you know. Oh yeah, okay. Like, you That's know, fair. I feel like Chevy Chase is best. Let's we'll start there. Any favorite Chevy Chase bit? We, we could update. I mean, like, just, you know, he, I mean, he, he was, you know, he and, I mean, and um, Jane, uh, what's her name? I mean, they were We Could Update, like, coming up. Well, so uh, I would, my, I would go for my Saturday Night Live favorite. I hadn't thought about that, yeah. but off the cuff, yeah. uh, his Gerald Ford yeah. impression. Yeah, the Gerald I, Ford's good. I, I, I was, I was told there'd be no math. I was told there would be no math. That's very useful. I use that all the time. I still use that gift. Yeah, like, yeah. you know, whatever. Anyway, all right. Like in my Ninth Circuit, in my, in my rant about how people understand the Ninth Circuit. Um, so movies I mean obviously you know there are some there are some there are some clear sort of clubhouse leaders Mm -hmm. um, like Caddyshack sure oh very oh uh, see what you did there um, I I am deeply partial to the vacation movies you know Clark W. Griswold Um, what what's your favorite of the vacation of the vacation yeah so I think that basically there's there's two different there's there's the original yeah. which is one kind of movie and yep. then there's sort of the uh, although European Vacation is sort of of a similar it's close yeah I, I, Christmas Vacation I'm actually not that much of a fan of my <laughs> wife loves it um, it's okay uh, European Vacation has some pretty great moments rusty um, but I think that it's hard to beat the original yeah. I think it's really it's Porky Pig. Wally World, Wally World, Wally World. Yes, Moose Out Front should have told you. Um, I, I do love the original. Although your PM gets you, look, kids, Big Ben. Does the does the sheriff approve of your your, <laughs> your business practices? The guy pulls out the badge. Yeah. It's full of classic moments. Uh, so Caddyshack and Vacation are um, obviously some amazingly yeah. iconic films. I was home yesterday because we had a bunch of folks coming to the house because we're still sort of doing the last round of getting the house up and going. Um, and Fletch was on. Oh, now that's what got us onto this again. Yes. Fletch. Fletch no, is a great movie. Fletch Lives is okay, but no, no. Fletch, Fletch is, it's so funny, scene after scene after scene. And of course, it's got the great, uh, you know, the guy who plays Alan Stanwyck. Tim Matheson. Yeah, who, who's his otter from uh, Animal and, House. And That's John Hoynes on the West Wing. Uh, you've got so many good, uh, do you know, do you know who's Norm in from Fletch? Cheers is uh, Is one of the, one of the, the, the guys the, on, the beach. on the beach. Do you Fat, know who, Fat Sam. Do you know who is in Fletch? Uh, can you be more specific? <laughs> like, like. Superstar, okay, right? Who was very early in her career, um, and who has like a meaningful role in Fletch. This is not Mrs. Stanwyck. Not Mrs. Stanwyck. Oh, lay it on me, Judith Davis. Judith Davis is Larry Fletch's assistant. Oh, you're right. I can totally see that. Yep. That's yep. right. That's yep. right. Uh, a very young Judith Davis. That's pretty great. Okay, well that that bears watching again. Okay, let's go to the less, you know. So those are sort of the the really big ones. So you know, I, I like Memoirs of an Invisible Man. Oh, that's an interesting choice. I mean, it's a weird little movie, and it's sort of, you know, kind of silly, but so, what can I say? So when I was uh, a, a kid, and you know how it was with early cable TV, like whatever movie HBO had or Showtime had, they'd run it like every other week. times. For, yeah, exactly. So I think I saw Seems Like Old Times like a mm. million different times. Uh, I'm actually really curious to know whether I would think it's at all good now. Yeah. But at the time, I guess just by dint of repetition and sort of, uh, I thought that was great. Um, There's also, I mean, there are a bunch of, he has a bunch of cameos in some funny movies. So, like, in Hot Tub Time Machine, <laughs> he is the hot tub repairman. That's pretty great. What about um, uh, one where it's not a cameo, it's a major role? Three Amigos. We are the, the Three, three amigos. amigos. Who would be our third Amigo? 
Oh my gosh, that's an interesting question. Yeah. Listeners can tell us. Um, the third amigo. Would anyone want, would anyone want the, the dos amigos? Um, all right, let's see what else. Spies like us. Do you, thumbs up or thumbs down to spies like us? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> You're the other GLG twenties. Oh my gosh, that's a pretty fun one. Um, what else? Um, yeah, I mean, a lot, it starts getting thin. I, yeah, I, you know, I just and I go back to Saturday Night Live. I mean, I just feel like you know, I Chevy Chase, I, I Chevy Chase and Garrett Morris, you know, to me are so emblematic, and and Eddie Murphy, right, the sort of late seventies, early eighties cast of Saturday Night Live. Oh, they were so good. Um, Dan Aykroyd, Belushi, um, all the all those guys. I'm a little tempted to just, even though we're not probably supposed to, you know, do this without license or whatever. Oh, come on. Uh-oh. I was going to try to play something. Bobby has a prop. I have a prop. Let's see if we can get this going. And now, weekend update with Chevy we're totally getting sued for this. Can we? Yeah, it's not loud enough. I think we should give up on that. What was it? What, what, what was it? It's just uh, he's doing the death of Chairman Mao on our uh-huh. weekend update. Yes. Anyway, suffice it to say, we are fans. Let's take a look at the this just happens to be on in the background. <laughs> All right. Um, uh, this isn't working. Hey, are we recording next week? No, we should probably we should probably vacation. I will be Speaking out of for Chevy Christmas. Chase, and, uh, are, we, are we going on our own Christmas vacation? I, I think, yes, exactly so. In honor of Holiday Julia Louise Dreyfus and uh, the neighbors. Wait, who's the husband? So Julia Louise Dreyfus, and then who's her husband in, in Christmas Vacation? You know, the, the, the stuffy guys next door. Oh, that's a good question. I, I, all I remember all I remember from Christmas Vacation is Randy Quaid emptying, emptying the sewer line <laughs> yeah. from, his, um, from his RV. From his RV into the, into the um, oh, that movie. I have not seen that movie in a long time. I don't know why they call time. it Hamburger Helper. Tastes just fine by itself. <laughs> On that note, I think we are taking next week off, and I wonder if we'll even manage the week after that. That might have to be news dependent. So it's possible, folks, you'll have to wait two or three weeks for your next episode of the National Security Law Podcast. Somehow I think you'll make it. I think you will. We'll be thinking about you, even if you're not thinking about us. Please uh, spread the word in the new year of the podcast and, and send us ideas. You know, the, the you, news you know pace what? is not quite what it used to be, you know, so the we Nas- need deep the, dive ideas. The National Security Law Podcast is a great Christmas present. It is affordable. It is affordable. It is scalable. It is, it is hours and hours of entertainment. <laughs> you can send right now 103 episodes, soon to be 104. Seriously. To a friend near you. I mean, I just, I, you know, if you're really thinking of your friends and family this holiday season, give them the gift that keeps on giving the National Security Law Podcast. I love it. Stay That's safe so out there. Adios.